Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN Veterans Broadcast Network with host General David Grange and co-host Ranger Doug. Here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 23rd program of Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our eighth episode in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight, we'll be discussing where are things and what lies in the future. We have with us guests that we've had before. We have Dean Chang, David Johnson, and Brian Downing. Dean, please introduce yourself. Uh, sure. Hi. Uh, I'm Dean Chang. I'm a senior research fellow uh, at the Heritage Foundation, specializing in Chinese political and security affairs. Next, I'd like Dave Johnson to introduce himself. Hi, I'm Dave Johnson. I'm the executive director at C4ADS, the Center for Advanced Defense Studies, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit think tank dedicated to dra- data-driven solutions to complex security problems. I'm a graduate of West Point, former Special Forces and Infantry Officer, served with a legislative liaison, I was an Army strategist with a master's in the history of strategy from the Sorbonne. Great. Thanks, Dave. And now Brian Downing, please. Uh, Brian Downing, uh, three years in the Army, uh, made it to the august rank of acting Jack Buck sergeant. After that, went to Georgetown University of Chicago and Harvard. Since then, I've been pretty much an independent security analyst. Great. Thank you very much. So, Dean, Where do you think Ukraine and Russia are today in the war? I think that at this point, uh, we are seeing the slow, steady grind. It would seem that the Russians have pulled a lot of their forces away from Kiev and Kharkiv and are concentrating on uh, basically securing Mariupol. If they succeed in doing that, which they probably will, then they will have a land bridge between Crimea and uh, the independent quote-unquote republics of Donbass and and Luhansk. Um, After that, the question is going to be, does Putin uh, sort of go stay satisfied? Does he try to cut off Odessa and link up with Russian forces in uh, Transdenister to the west, uh, which would then give uh, the Russians access to all of the Black Sea resources? Or does he renew an offensive on uh, Kiev uh, in the hopes of toppling uh, Zelensky, having secured a good chunk of eastern Ukraine? That's great, Dean. Thank you very much. Dave, how about you? Where do you think we are? So I think we're in a period that's what I would call a uh, strategic pause. Both sides have used up vast amounts of resources. The struggle is, as, as Dean described, ongoing. And yes, there are some options there. I think that, in fact, the Russians are pulling their forces into logistics resupply areas in the west of Russia, if you will. The uh, Ukrainians have a a large number of forces in that small gap in between Donetsk and Luhansk and uh, that Crimea uh, area that Dean talked about that run the risk of being cut off if the Russians can find a way to link those two sections up uh, because of the high-speed avenues approach there. But really, the game at this point is reload. 
uh, and who can reload the fastest. And I think strategically, we're now at that phase where the U.S. has authorized 800 million more dollars in uh, weaponry uh, and different kinds of weaponry. And hopefully the logistics systems in place will enable the Ukrainians to get to that space with uh, resources before the Russians are able to logistically rearm across the border and then try and cut off that section of uh, the peninsula there. Yes, certainly, if possible, they'd love to have Odessa and all of those resources at some point. But right now, I think we're in a period of, of reload and a race to reload. Two guys behind the wall trying to figure out who's going to get the, the ammo in their gun fastest. Nice comment, Dave. Thank you very much. Brian, how about you? I'm sort of reminded of the situation uh, along the Normandy coast in the month after D-Day, where there's just supplies coming in, flowing in everywhere, trying to get as many artillery pieces, tanks, uh, sea rations in as possible uh, for what's coming. And uh, we're seeing uh, Ukraine getting a lot of artillery and self-propelled guns. Apparently, the artillery they have has a particular caliber that is uh, it's being depleted and there's no way to get any more from Eastern European countries. Uh, they're getting javelins, they're getting S-300s from uh, Slovakia. I think they captured a lot of S-300s from the Russians. And we're seeing a lot of uh, T-72s coming in. And the United States is giving them uh, armored personnel carriers, M113s a vintage vehicle that old Brian used in his youth. Thank you. And uh, old Ranger Doug was able to use that vehicle in his career as well. <laughs> Who hasn't? So now the war's underway. What are the war aims of Mr. Putin, followed by those of Mr. Zelensky? Dave? So I think that uh, we always talk about mission creep. And certainly when he started, he thought that uh, he was hoping to do probably two or three things. First off, he has national imperatives, the nationalism of the Russian people and trying to retain power in his country. Uh, he also has this idea of the Carpathian Mountain Line. Historically, the Russians have feared invasion from the West. And if you look at the maps that everybody keeps posting on TV, it's not hard to believe that Russians might think that NATO was encircling them, especially as Sweden and Finland start talking about joining NATO as well. So he's going to make a point. His point was to the West saying, hey, I'm willing to step up and fight here. Are you? And also have uh, control of at least a puppet state, if he could, within the Ukraine. Now, with that, he has actually only said that he was there to protect Russian minorities within the breakaway provinces of Luhansk and Donbass. So he's got the big goal, but he can always fall back on the lesser goal. And so in a way, he may have strategically culminated on the big goal, but he's got a, time, he's got a period here where he can secure his uh, lesser goals of controlling uh, Donbass, uh, Luhansk, Crimea, and potentially the pieces that Dean was talking about as well, uh, without entirely taking um, the Ukraine. But at the very least, he needs to come away with Donbass and Luhansk. Great one, Dave. And uh, now I'd like to pass it to Brian. What do you think are the war aims of Russia and Mr. Putin? I think Putin wants a decisive win in the East. Uh, Dave mentioned uh, the possibility of a drive south from Izium and one north from Donetsk. I think uh, he wants uh, a big win, something like uh, what the Russians had at Stalingrad in 42-43, where they surrounded uh, the 6th Army of Von Paulus. If he can do that, the war's 
completely changed. Uh, he's reversed the tide. He can uh, win decisively. Uh, it may take a while. He may not think he can drive on Kiev immediately, but he will solidify. He will have solidified his position in the east and on the land bridge over to uh, the Crimea. Uh, and then we go to phase two, and whether that's in six months or two years, I don't know. But uh, I think Putin wants Ukraine. Uh, he wants it badly. He wants it for his own prestige so he can put himself in the pantheon with Stalin and Ivan and Peter the Great. So that's the look I see, the big offensive in the East, pincer movement, north-south, big battle. Good. And how about you, Dean? Back to you. Well, I think, listening to my co-panelists, um, what is really disturbing here is, one, that I'm not sure we know Putin's ultimate goals, but two, I think there is a general sense that uh, whatever his momentary goals are, he's likely to come back. And that poses a really huge challenge to Ukraine, to NATO, to the West. Um, you know, it's one thing if Putin uh, takes, let's say, the Eastern Republics and says, okay, I'm done. I would have liked more, but, but that's not enough. But if he really wants the big win, and I think there's a lot of reason to think that at the end of the day, after digesting Luhansk and Donbass, he will want more, um, that means that whatever emerges for the moment, an armistice, even a peace, is highly temporary uh, because Putin doesn't seem to have a satiable appetite short of taking a lot more than what he currently has. And for uh, President Zelensky, the flip side is that on the one hand, he has achieved, um, thanks to Mr. Putin, uh, a huge goal, which is to a real Ukrainian sense of national identity. Um, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, it wasn't so clear whether Ukrainians thought of themselves as Ukrainians. Now they do. The challenge here is whether that's enough for them to be, uh, this week there's been a number of articles comparing Ukraine with Israel in the sense of a nation that is constantly under threat, constantly uh, faced with adversaries who are prepared to go to war, and whether Ukraine, in its new sense of national, nationalism, is prepared to live like that, to basically be constantly ready to drop your, your knitting, drop your, your plows, drop your bus passengers off, and go and take up uniform and go fight the Russians again. Great comment. And, and since you segued into uh, the war aims of uh, Zelensky, I'll jump to uh, Brian and ask you to describe, Brian, what do you think are the war aims of Ukraine and, and Mr. Zelensky? I think Ukraine wants to decisively defeat Russia in the east. Uh, we mentioned that pincer movement from the north and south. I think Ukraine wants to prevent that, uh, perhaps even annihilate the pincer columns if they make any penetration. Uh, if they do that, the Russian strategic position is uh, they have no more offensive punch. It would take months, years to get it back. From there, I think Ukraine wants to retake Mariupol for its symbolic value to get uh, just a heroic risk resistance going on there. Retaking Mariupol would interrupt that land bridge, prevent it from coming about. Beyond that, I think uh, Ukraine has to prepare for the next war, whether it's six months, two years, I don't know. Uh, 
Zelensky wants to just make uh, Ukraine so fortified that it can never be attacked again. The analogy to Israel would, would be appropriate here. No Arab country can attack Israel. That's been clear since 1973. Uh, and I think Zelensky wants the EU and the world to contain or strangle Russia for years to come so that it could never reconstitute itself economically and militarily. That's great, Brian. Dave, tell us a little bit about what you think about uh, the war aims of Ukraine. So the government of Ukraine would like to have its uh, territorial sovereignty intact. It wants Donbass and Luhansk back. That's what the war has been on since 2014. They're not, they're not done with that yet. Um, and so, you know, how they go about that is going to be problematic uh, because each of these victories is a Pyrrhic victory. In other words, they're losing a lot of assets and people even when they win. And uh, the challenge there is that the Russians may be very uncoordinated in offense right now, but they're going to be a lot stiffer in defense, and it's going to be a lot harder to kick them out than it is to prevent them from invading. So there's going to be some challenges as time goes on for the Ukrainians, because they're going, no matter what Putin does, they're going to keep fighting until they get Luhansk and Donbass back. So it's not over, even if Putin pulls out. And that's really what I think is going to be an important element in these discussions and discussions of peace. It's easy for foreign countries to trade your territory, and uh, Zelensky's not going to do it. I think you're right. And in fact, I, I think uh, some of what I see reminds me of what might have happened had Lee decided to set up between Washington and Meade uh, at Gettysburg and said, here, fight me here. If Putin sees a certain terrain, then the Ukrainians have to fight. And I wonder how they'll do. But of course, I just uh, sent out a, a great article that uh, was written by Thomas Friedman that includes an interview with Professor John Arquilla, who just retired from Naval Postgraduate School. And there are some really interesting pieces in there that uh, you may be able to digest. It's, a, it's an excellent article on how swarming may beat surging and so forth. And we're seeing a lot of that right now. But the, the key thing is who wins in the end. And of course, that may depend on how long it lasts. So we'll pause now for a commercial. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 23rd program, our eighth episode in the story of Russia Moves Into Ukraine. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. 
High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is our 23rd program of the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our eighth episode of Russia Moves Into Ukraine. We're discussing a number of questions with a fine panel. So let's move on to the fourth question. And this is just one to take in uh, the world as a whole. Uh, and I'm, I'm just going to ask simply, what are the noticeable activities of and or effects on the U.S., NATO, and the EU, and the world, including the PRC? And the first to answer that will be Dean. Over to you, Dean. Well, I think uh, what we are seeing uh, that strikes me as most worrisome is global inflation. Uh, inflation was already taking off before this war, um, but uh, with both Russia and Ukraine uh, heavily engaged. Uh, these are two of the world's largest wheat producers. And so apart from the oil issue is food. And rising prices, uh, which we are seeing in our supermarkets, which we are starting to see in Europe uh, and elsewhere, it's useful to remember that the Arab Spring a few years back began because bread prices rose across the Middle East. And so as food and energy prices rise, we're going to see broader inflation globally. And that is going to have a real impact on a number of countries. Now, uh, the West, uh, our political system is, believe it or not, fairly stable. So we can generally ride out inflation so long as it doesn't go into you know, 10, 15, 20 percent. But Egypt, uh, Tunisia, um, South American countries, uh, in particular Iran, uh, these are places that are probably not going to do well if we have uh, global, uh, if, if food prices and energy prices hit them hard. The other thing to keep in mind here is that China is a net food importer. And so rising food prices will affect China. Um, but the Chinese have some of the world's largest hard currency reserves. At the end of the day, they can probably still buy their way out of any crisis. But in doing so, they will also be driving up food prices. And again, the people who are going to suffer the most are those in less developed countries in South America, in Africa and Southeast Asia. So I think we should all basically, uh, you know, uh, tighten our, our chin straps because I suspect we are going to start seeing some serious political instability, whether a growth in terrorism or whether a growth in, in just general civil unrest 
across much of the global South. Dave, how about you? What do you think? Cover any of those or all, if you wish. Well, I think that what's going on has an impact across diplomatic, informational, military, economic, and political spectra. All of those systems will be affected. And I think Dean did a brilliant job describing the economic impacts. Uh, Diplomatically, we're starting to see that uh, nations that before might have been neutral or felt that they could stay out of this discussion between uh, the threats and NATO or being uh, less aligned with the European Union are flocking to one banner or the other. And we see that with the other non-aligned countries of the world as well, trying to figure out where they stand. And a lot of that also has to do with the information campaigns that are going on on both sides. You know, we talked earlier about uh, the military objectives and yes, Certainly there are military objectives, but sometimes you have an information war supported by military maneuver. And in this case, we're starting to see uh, the impacts of those things on the decisions of various countries around the world in terms of their alignment. Militarily, uh, obviously there's a whole lot of impact uh, around the world on various military assets being available for use. And certainly the unrest that Dean described are going to put pressures on global militaries in terms of counterinsurgency, mass migrations, those kinds of things. And politically, even within uh, countries that aren't involved in this particular fight, uh, the information conflict is going to cause uh, uh, some internal conflicts, political conflicts, uh, not just the uh, economic pieces. Uh, doing that as well. So I think that uh, there are massive impacts of a war of this kind. Certainly, we are now seeing the nature of war as it really is, uh, often amazed by the you know, Twitterverse and uh, social media types who think they're going to go do some kind of uh, war tourism when you know, you're pretty much over there for the whole thing and it's a real war, people. What you're calling atrocities are basically war as it's always been. Uh, so I think we're having massive impacts across the globe. Great, Dave. Excellent comment. Brian, over to you. Well, I think we've seen a greater resolve in NATO. We've seen greater numbers in NATO. Uh, Finland and Sweden are apparently going to join. That's must be a tremendous jolt to Russian security thinkers. Uh, We're seeing Japan sending uh, military equipment to Ukraine. I don't know the contents exactly. And oddly enough, um, Japan is sort of making noise about the Kuril Islands, which were taken from them by the Soviet Union in 1945. I don't really expect any conflict there, but it's interesting that they're making diplomatic noise about this. Uh, As far as supplies going to Russia, two things. I'm seeing that Iran is sending them weapons, which is very strange, and it tells us something about uh, Russia's supply and its sophistication. Uh, The other thing is apparently there are Chinese military cargo aircraft flying into Serbia. The thinking is that they're not there to supply Serbia, that they're there to supply, albeit indirectly, Russia. Again, I don't have any knowledge of the contents there. But uh, so the two things, it's rather desperate for Russia if they're getting equipment from uh, Iran. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. Well, that cargo that flew in on those uh, copies of our C-17 was actually an Iranian-produced copy of the S-300. So yes, the S-300 is an excellent missile system that involves two missiles, one a very long-range missile, one a rather medium-range missile. Uh, The medium-range missile ranges out to about 60 kilometers, and the long-range missile 
about 420, anywhere from about five feet above the ground and to about 400,000 feet. So it can actually be used in many different dimensions. And the radar system of those missiles and the S-24 or S-400 can generally tune up everyone's microwave and everything else to achieve better visibility of targets uh, at, at all of those altitudes. Now, the, the thing is limited by the number of missiles it can fire, but several systems can be paired so that uh, they can actually launch from separate systems uh, to acquire targets acquired by a different missile system. And they can pass command control back and forth so as they are able to avoid uh, anti-radar missiles. So it's a very dangerous system. That's why everybody's talking about it. One has to wonder why we haven't evolved better artillery and we haven't uh, evolved better anti-radar equipment. Uh, one quick thing I'd like to say about the S-300 is that apparently the Russian cruiser, Moskva, had a strong complement of S-300s. In fact, it had three separate air defense systems, and they all seem to have failed. As we all know, the Russian Ministry of Defense admitted late this afternoon, our time, that the Moskva was resting on the bottom of the Black Sea. Yeah, and that's that's the key part. What probably struck the Moskva was a smaller-sized projectile that the S-300 isn't necessarily uh, going to be able to defend against. But our CRAM that you mentioned last week would have been the ideal thing to, to engage a low-flying, fast-flying uh, missile set like that. But against regular aircraft, such as a MiG-29, the 300 and its advanced variants, and they have many blocks of it, and these nations that are making copies of the S-300 have actually upgraded them. So, for example, South Korea makes one. Uh, the Iranians apparently are making one. Uh, but they're going off the original Russian, Russian design that was designed by Almaz Anti, which originally was located somewhere in Ukraine. So, like the Iron Dome would have been more effective at defeating those, those things. This missile set probably wasn't effective at something like that. Uh, I'd like to just recap then on this issue. Uh, in the U.S., we're seeing a number of things happen, but obviously uh, the, the nation is coalesced behind the Ukrainians. The U.S. is supplying equipment and uh, all of its uh, dime aspects uh, generally in favor of Ukraine. But at the same time, uh, obviously, we still rely on the Russians to help negotiate uh, the follow-on to a nuclear agreement with Iran. That, that is a strange bit of diplomacy, but it just shows you the world today. Meanwhile, we've dislocated uh, the Russian ruble uh, in an attempt to try to slow it down. The ruble has actually gained uh, after that effort. We may have put our own U.S. dollar uh, as a world currency uh, in doubt because the Chinese have raised their own, and they're now trading on that with Russia and others. The Russians have demanded payment in rubles for energy to Europe. There are many strange things that are coming out of the second and third order effects of what seem to be fairly logical approaches. In NATO, not only is NATO more strongly organized and, and seeming to link arms than it was, at least those nations that we, we know about. We know, for instance, the status of Germany, France, and others, but we don't know what it's done to Portugal, Italy, and certain other nations. But it's also having Germany, for instance, considering rearming, upping its budget, and uh, the inclusion of other Scandinavian nations, as were mentioned, that uh, have been partners of NATO for some time. We worked with them in the Balkans, for example, the Danes, the Norwegians, uh, the Ukrainians, the Swedes, and the Finns were all there, as were the Russians back in the late 90s, uh, actually going on to work uh, 
together essentially in, in Kosovo as well. So NATO is seeming to become stronger and uh, more poised to counter a future Russian threat, at least against allies, not partners. In the EU, quite a number of things have, have obviously been done. They probably will follow the NATO lead as far as the economic and other follows of uh, NATO's military efforts. The EU's security aspect, the military aspect they hope to get together, hasn't had much play, probably won't. The world in general, including the People's Republic of China, appears to have split into two camps. And obviously the PRC appears to be on the Russian side. And I said last week, and I, I do believe that the meeting between Mr. Putin and uh, Mr. Xi actually set the timetable for the operation to begin after the conclusion of the Winter Olympics. Dean Chang remarked on an earlier program that Russians had essentially invaded other countries after Olympics or during Olympics. So it was kind of a key factor. And, uh, Articles and, and other things that emerge from things such as defense and foreign affairs. Gregory Copley, for example, thought that at the beginning of the war, the Russians had actually seized the head of that relationship and were now dominating the Chinese. But I think after everything that we've seen occur, one cannot really say that that's the case any longer. And I wonder if the Chinese are not actually interested in seeing the war elongate because that places them further at the lead. Dean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that in just a moment. I did want to follow up with some quotes from that article by Thomas Friedman in his interview with Professor John Arquilla. Professor Arquilla has devised three new principles of war, and the advice that Arquilla would give Putin is, make peace, you fool, the same way that Gerd von Rundstedt phoned Field Marshal Keitel after we landed at Normandy and said, the one thing you can do is make peace, you fools. In other words, make peace after Normandy to avoid total destruction by the approaching Soviet army. But the uh, book title that Professor Arquilla has written is Bitskrieg, The New Challenge of Cyber Warfare. And he's been the guy who has pioneered a number of networking articles and been a big uh, handler of a number of things in the digital environment. The first principle would be many and small beats large and heavy. And we're seeing that borne out here. The second is finding always beats flanking. And he quotes the fact that in Ukraine... Uh, there are many, many people who are reporting through social media and other places on locations of Russian enemies, and it's enabled the Ukrainians to put together a pretty good targeting system without having to resort to something that gives off a huge signal and can be attacked, like radars and other sensors. And the third rule of this New Age warfare that uh, Professor Arquilla sees is that swarming, in other words, a swarm of like insects, always beats surging, in other words, like a huge armored counterattack. So these are three things to consider. But of course, that's covering the phase that we've seen now. The next phase must uh, show us something different. And as I said last week, the two things that really gave the Russians victory in World War II, aside from a, a developed ability to learn under Marshal Zhukov, were number one, the Russian public was so aroused, there was no stopping them. And once they'd been a year and a half or so into the war, the fury of the Russian people, the Soviet people, was enough to defeat Germany given a few modifications. And the one modification that they made was the installation of the commissars. It allowed them to get through about a year and a half of the war. Eventually, they did away with the commissars, but it was only after Zhukov had instituted new training methods. The weather got better. The Germans made some mistakes. And of course, the Germans had extended themselves against the world in Africa, Western Europe, Eastern Europe. They were gradually being pinched. They lost the best of their manpower, the best of their equipment by the time of Kursk in 1943, and thus the end of the war was gradually something that was a foregone conclusion. At the conclusion of the war, obviously, we traded some space to get West Berlin, 
I'm looking for something like that in relation to these republics. And now let's take another commercial break. We'll be back in a moment. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You do not want to miss what's coming next. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application in identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, with Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 23rd program, our eighth episode in the series of Russia Moves Into Ukraine. So now we'll move to the fifth question, which is, what is the status of any ceasefire or peace efforts? I'd like Brian Downing to take that question, please. Well, I think both sides are uh, getting ready for the decisive battle in the East, whether it's the uh, gradual push out of the East or an attempted pincer movement north and south. I'm not sure. I suspect the latter, but there's not going to be any meaningful uh, talks until one side is decisively defeated in the East. That should be, I don't know, maybe two months. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you. Dean, over to you with that question. Well, Peace negotiations are meaningful only under a fairly strict set of circumstances. One side or the other is exhausted. Uh, One side or the other uh, thinks they are winning and is choosing to offer terms. Uh, War, um, both sides are just 
spent. Uh, if we take a look at major wars in the 20th century, very few of them ended through negotiation. In general, you had to basically bludgeon, one side had to bludgeon the other to the point where they had little choice. Um, earlier wars, 18th and 19th century, there was a whole lot of, we had a few battles, honor was served, now we'll trade this province for that province. Um, what is in it for Mr. Zelensky uh, heading a country, uh, suffering atrocities, to negotiate? What is in it for Mr. Putin, who started all this and gambled his reputation and his country's reputation to, at this point, negotiate? Uh, the real question, I think, is going to be, especially for Putin, at the end of the day, he has nuclear weapons. He has an option, unthinkable though it may be to us, to, as the Russian doctrine says, to escalate, to de-escalate, to go so high that it terrifies everyone. And then he says, all right, now that I've demonstrated a potential willingness to even go that far, now are you willing to negotiate? Works great in theory, uh, you know, at think tanks and, and conference rooms, but no one's fired a nuclear weapon since 1945. Uh, the Russians... Uh, have not been put in this kind of position before, it's going to be a very interesting question whether he's going to even think about going down that path. Great. Thank you, Dean. Dave, over to you. I think uh, both of the previous speakers were spot on. Um, I, I do think that, as I said earlier, Zelensky doesn't have anything to trade. He, he's not interested in trading anything. So there's nothing to negotiate in that sense. There's got to be something like, I, you know, I won't join NATO. You know, that's that's about as far as he can really go. But he can't trade terrain and he can't accept the one thing that is kind of a Putin's bottom line, which is Donbass and Luhansk. Uh, and so I don't see any place to go there. And Putin's a dictator, so he can't afford to lose face or have the truth about what's going on in a lot of ways or, or a different truth come out in the media within his own country and still retain power. And if he loses power... Uh, he probably loses his life as well. So I don't see a whole lot of peace negotiating happening. Uh, I don't see anywhere for anybody to go with that until, as Dean says, they're, both sides are completely exhausted and they're not there. Like I said, right now they're reloading. It's still left to be seen who's going to have a decisive victory. And what happens when that victory is not decisive we're not decisive enough. I just think that we're looking at uh, the long haul here, more likely currently for uh, Ukraine to hold on and then burn themselves out or continue to struggle within the Donbass and Luhansk regions uh, to try to recover lost territory. Because when they have to go on the offensive, it's an entirely different game for them as well. Offensives take a whole lot more coordination. You know, with defense, you've got preparation, concentration, disruption, and flexibility. Offensives are not easy. So, like I said, I don't think there's any negotiating happening in the near in the near future. I want to be clear: it's not that they're not going to negotiate or keep the lines of communication open, uh, especially for information operations purposes. You know, propaganda. But there's not; they don't have anything to trade each other. They're they're not. There's not going to be a peace in the near term. Great, Dave. Thank you. I would just like to comment myself to wrap this segment up, saying that there 
were negotiations underway that the Turks and the Israelis were sponsoring. Now, oddly enough, the Turks, while seeming to be uh, on the side of, of Russia by some means, uh, had actually supplied the uh, Ukrainians with the Bayraktar drone, which carries a destructive missile and uh, has been very effective, possibly other equipment as well. But also in these days, I think we'll be surprised to find that while war itself is not kept a secret because everyone has a chance to see what's going on. The chaos and confusion often does allow peace negotiations or discussions or parties to sit with one another and try to figure out a way ahead. But as the guests have said, Ukraine's success in this phase of the war has actually made peace difficult to achieve because the one guy who would have to agree to talk and stop fighting at this point would be Mr. Zelensky, and he's likely not going to because the rest of the world appears to want to propel him to continue fighting, which in some ways seems almost dangerous. He might have been able to argue himself back to the same position with uh, Luhansk, Donetsk, and Crimea in the hands of the Russians with uh, the same and possibly more stringent measures applied to what those would do. And then obviously he would have to wait for another strike later on. But Putin does have a lifespan, whether it's natural or not. The one thing that really occurs to me, though, and I'd like to pass this to Dean for just a quick comment. And Dean, I know, is a master of this. I think that the real pressure point in this whole thing might be the PRC. And Dean, what would you think about anyone working with uh, the PRC in some way to try to get them to decide that this thing needs to be called at this point and some solution derived under supervision of? Uh, some body, in other words, a multinational body or others. Over to you, Dean. Well, the EU foreign minister, uh, Josep Borrell, has made this suggestion, but the reality is that the Chinese have shown no evidence of interest in negotiating or serving as a, a broker, peace broker here. Um, the February 4th statement between Putin and Xi on the eve of the Winter Olympics talked about a friendship without limits. Uh, for she to now turn around and say to the Russians, you need to negotiate, would pretty clearly undermine uh, that statement and whatever relationship is there. It's also useful to consider here that China thinking ahead uh, in its own central propaganda department uh, directives noted uh, to Chinese media sources, do not criticize the Russian uh, action, uh, special military operation because we will need Russian support in the event of a Taiwan contingency. So again, uh, I don't think that she is going to somehow uh, turn on Moscow when they're already thinking about the potentiality of a Taiwan contingency. I also just want to note here, uh, there's a huge amount of mirror imaging going on, not only about Russia, but also about China. And this idea, for example, that maybe Xi Jinping wants a Nobel Peace Prize, um, he's going into a 20th party Congress facing a lot of issues at home and a Nobel Peace Prize is not going to save him. Um, but more to the point is, uh, you know, Xi Jinping is not Barack Obama. Uh, Xi Jinping is, is not Bill Clinton. He is not looking for some kind of, uh, Hollywood grand, uh, you know, praise from, from Steven Spielberg here. Uh, he is in a cutthroat, political environment at home where the issue is going to be keeping China in its, in its proper orbit, not about currying favor with Davos and, and global elites. Thank you, Dean. Would you say then that uh, Xi Jinping is looking more to Mao Zedong uh, to uh, uh, emulate? Uh, well, 
certainly he has concentrated power in his own hands to a greater extent than anyone probably since Mao. But here too, it's useful to remember Mao didn't go around uh, trying to broker peace deals either. Um, but I do think that uh, Xi is, is a different creature than Mao. Mao Zedong had one huge advantage. He was viewed widely as the father of the PRC. Um, she is not that, but she is a very canny leader. Uh, he has succeeded in outflanking his domestic opposition. This fall, he will basically uh, overturn one of the most important uh, strictures laid down by Deng Xiaoping, the second most important leader in PRC history, when he basically says, uh, not only do term limits not apply to me, but retirement age limits don't apply to me. Um, so he clearly is is going to be the most powerful Chinese leader uh, since Mao. But he does so with, in a weird way, a little less legitimacy because he, unlike Mao, cannot claim to have helped found the People's Republic of China. Thank you. And just to follow up on that, do you believe, uh, you know, we're talking mostly about the military aspects in this program, but does the lengthening of the war and strengthening of PRC's position bring them any closer to their desire to become perhaps the world's standard currency? Uh, the renminbi, the Chinese renminbi, is not currently uh, a floating currency. Its exchange rate is set by the Chinese Communist Party. That makes it a far less interesting uh, candidate to be a global reserve currency because at the end of the day, uh, what is its price? Its price is set by uh, the, the dwarves of Beijing, not the gnomes of Zurich. However, there has been talk between Beijing and Saudi Arabia about potentially re-denominating oil, or at least some part of Saudi Arabia's oil exports, into renminbi. That would be a huge blow to the role of the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency. Um, it says something about Saudi perceptions of American reliability, about the role of sanctions, about, frankly, the friendliness of this administration or uh, unfriendliness of this administration, that the Saudis would be open to this Chinese proposition. Now, that almost certainly is partly political maneuvering, but it is a worrisome move. And inflation corrodes the legitimacy of any currency, including the global reserve currency. So I suspect that uh, Xi is also keeping a very close eye on the inflation rate in China as the global economy goes sideways because of this war. Ah, so you're, you're talking about the petro renminbi. What do you think perhaps that uh, is to do with this initiative China is, is uh, preferring uh, regarding a digital currency, perhaps that becoming something to see in the world. Digital currencies, I mean, are are a matter of convenience and a matter of monitoring. Uh, they're a matter of convenience because it's, it's a lot like a credit card or a debit card, really. Um, the issue is that a global digitalized currency system means that a lot of things now become visible to the government. If you're the PRC, that's an absolute feature. If you're the American public, where we still say at least we believe in limited government, that's a real bug. Um, do we want Washington? Uh, do we want the IRS? Do we want the Treasury to know about every one of our purchases? Do we want them, in theory, then to be able to start doing haircuts to your savings account, uh, your checking account? We saw this in Cyprus uh back around 2008, if I remember right, when they actually mandated that all savings accounts would have to hand over some percentage, I think it was like 5% to the national government uh, because they needed money. 
Um, so digital currencies, uh, you know, really plays upon the idea of, of convenience. And for Beijing, that is, I guess, ultimately the hope is that countries such as Belt and Road Initiative recipients, aid recipients will say, all right, uh, we'll tie our currency to your currency and we'll do it digitally. And then we don't have to basically go th through a dollar intermediary. But many of these countries may not realize is that in the process, China is extending its tentacles, if you will, certainly its visibility, its ability to peer into your banking system, into your financial system, into your treasury. Thank you, Dean. That was really great. And, and uh, it's really important to discuss the financial aspect of this because there's there's a lot to do that's outside the military effort that really is important, I think, in the world as well as to the audience. And your comments were spot on. I really appreciate them. Let's pause now for a commercial. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, our 23rd program, our eighth episode in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application in identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. 
Welcome back from commercial. This is our 23rd program on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our eighth episode in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Now we're going to move to our final question, which is, what can we look forward to in the coming weeks and any further thoughts? At the conclusion of the program, I will ask each person for a concluding thought. So what can we look for in the coming weeks and any further thoughts? Over to you, Dave. So I think in the coming weeks, as I've said, we can look forward to uh, rearming. I think we can see renewed activity in the east, which is uh, going to be the uh, most important, I think, battlefield in some ways. Uh, geostrategically, perhaps uh, Odessa is the most important uh, aspect of, of what could go on. The Russians have always sought warm water ports and, and the Carpathian mountain line, as I mentioned earlier. So my thoughts here are generally that we're looking at different forces that have gone to in, in the case of the Russians, they culminated strategically. Now they're in a strategic pause, rearming, uh, and that's what we can see in the coming weeks. Uh, we are trying to get arms in, uh, in the hands of the um, Ukrainians as quickly as possible. The right kinds of arms are a challenge. Uh, there are also a number of things in D.C. and the bureaucracy around how we do that that, are, that is, is going to take some time off the timeline to get that to the Ukrainians, although there are a lot of things in place now that uh, have been put in place that are, are moving quite rapidly. Uh, and I think that uh, the uh, aspect of defense versus offense is going to be seen much like the Battle of Gettysburg that you cited uh, earlier is going to be seen as critical. Who's, who's, who's on defense, I think, has a, a significant advantage in uh, this environment. So thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. That was great. I really appreciate that. And now over to Brian. Well, we all saw what happened to the Moskva, and I think that's uh, shifting my attention, at least to the Black Sea. The ship, the Moskva, was supposed to support operations all along the Black Sea coast. Well, it can't really do that because it's at the bottom of the sea now. Sebastopol, the Russian port, is within range of Ukrainian Neptune missiles stationed on land near Odessa. I'm hearing some reports that uh, some of the ships are putting out to sea, and I'm seeing maps of uh, smaller Russian vessels that are closer to the Turkish coast now than they are to uh, the Ukrainian coast. It's a tremendous embarrassment for the Navy, and it has that they were to point to the generals as being the people who are letting the team down. But now the Navy is uh, sharing in that humiliation. I have to wonder about supplies to the Russian troops in that land bridge. And looking forward, if Ukraine is able to decisively defeat Russia in the east in coming months, as I think it will, I think it could come down and retake a lot of territory along the land bridge. And without that naval support, just throwing something out here, could the Ukraine, Ukrainian army retake the Crimean Peninsula in a few months? Possible, just something to throw out there. Thank you, Brian. And Dean, over to you. My general brief is on China. So I'm going to throw out a couple of things that will probably be occurring over the next year to two years with the PRC, given what's been going on in Ukraine. The first is I think we are going to see a major step up in Chinese military training. Because one of the things that I think Ukraine has demonstrated is that even a military with a fair amount of combat experience, and let's remember the Russian military has fought in Syria, the Russian military has fought in Georgia, it has advised uh, in the Nagorno-Karabakh war, they have far more combat experience than the Chinese do. At the end of the day, they have not done well in Ukraine. 
for the Chinese, that has got to be a huge gut check. No matter how modern your military is, how well-equipped it is, launching an amphibious invasion across over 100 miles of some of the worst water in the world, that is a daunting prospect. And Russia's inability to win quickly against Ukraine is a big warning to Beijing and the People's Liberation Army. Uh, The other thing that I would expect them to do, and this goes back to the financial issue, is that if the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia are as devastating as we think they have been, uh, truly crippling the Russian economy, then I suspect the Chinese are going to try and set up an insulated separate financial system for bank clearing housing, transfers, etc., apart from the dollar, apart from uh, SWIFT, from CHIPS, to basically allow them to manage a global trading system centered on China that does not involve the U.S. dollar. That won't be easy. It certainly won't be quick. But I would say that over the next two to three years, that is what we should be keeping an eye on as the Chinese digest their lessons from the Russia-Ukraine war. Thank you for that, Dean. Thank you very much. Well, I would uh, like to conclude this round by saying that I think that uh, each of you have had really valid points regarding what can be coming. And this is the key part. Uh, This is a very new kind of war. We can't be sure what will happen. But in fact, the future of warfare is to be determined by what happens. And and I believe right now, the the three thoughts that uh, Professor Arquilla articulated that I mentioned a few minutes ago are are going to have a great effect. I think if the Russians are capable and have better forces somewhere to launch, they may try it. But in fact, those forces may become affected by what the Ukrainians have done so far. And unlike the Russians, at least to this point, Ukrainians seem to have a great propensity to be able to learn from what is going on and adapt to it because they're not fixed on any terrain. They move in small groups, at least we think they do, and they use weapons that don't require a large platform and groups of weapons together on a road to affect uh, their performance. Also, in regards to China and what it's doing, I agree. I believe they've actually had to pull back and think about what this may mean for any effort they may wish to present uh, to China. And I think the fact that the Moskva has been sunk, as well as other ships, may mean that we don't see a conventional amphibious landing anywhere in the Black Sea. But I am looking for something like a Helleborn assault from further out that might be somewhat of a surprise. I do believe the Russians have some better forces, but I think that the same thing that befell these forces, the idea that, as we've said on previous programs, what appears to have happened is that the regular operations and maintenance of large amounts of the force to keep it fresh didn't occur, and the Russians were exercising maybe a company at a time of various divisions, and maybe a single company that did everything. And while that was being done, the rest of the vehicles were sitting in motor pools, not having regular maintenance applied, and the parts were sold off for money by others who stole them. And all of a sudden, when they had to roll out, they rolled out with what they had. The tires, the road wheels, and everything else fell apart, and they were stranded. And you can't repair vehicles in combat, not at that scale. So there's a lot here that that we'll have to wait and see about, but I do not see in the Russian army of today a Zhukov who could not only win at the Battle of Kalkangol early in the war, which stunted the Japanese approach into Mongolia and Manchuria and forced them into the Pacific to attack us at Pearl Harbor. Zhukov then recovered to lead the effort not only at Stalingrad, but to the defeat mechanism of the Germans in the end because he was such a a brilliant commander, having been an NCO at first, but learning everything he needed to by studying war as he fought it. I don't know of anyone that's there in in the Russian formation or in many world formations right now that has that level of experience. So I don't look for an abrupt change. But yes, it's going to become likely a war of attrition 
and it's a question of who can last the longest. As far as food and supplies and other things, the Russians probably have a difficulty there if, if they move outside normal lines of communications, for example, outside Belarus and their republics. The Ukrainians probably have a pretty good situation ahead regarding food and other supplies, but they may run perilously short of military supplies if they cannot continue to resupply themselves. The longer they fight, It'll become a matter of who can stand to lose the most. And there probably won't be an internal move against President Zelensky. But, of course, we're hearing that there might be one against Mr. Putin. So that might decide things early. We really don't know. I don't look for a surprise peace agreement somewhere, but there might be some breakthrough in diplomacy that one side or the other may offer in the end. Not likely that will come from Russia, but possibly something posed by a third party that each side can agree to and decide to drop the tools, get an agreement supervised uh, territories and zone of separation and so forth, as we've done in other countries, there might be a number of things that can happen. But these are just possibilities we'll have to watch. And as I've said in past programs, just like no plan survives first contact with the enemy, no position of any of our participants needs to be set in stone because this type of war is very new and it shifts. We haven't seen a fight like this since the Slovenes defeated the Yugoslav army early in the Bosnian, well, in the Yugoslav war. And they did so by investing in new technologies, quite reminiscent of what the Arabs in Egypt did to the Israelis in 73. But by that time of the uh, war in Yugoslavia, the Slovenes had invested in helicopters with anti-tank missiles, and they so thoroughly defeated the Yugoslav National Army forces that Milosevic and the army pulled back, granted Slovenia its independence, and then waged war against other republics that were out of line. So we may see quite a number of, of developments as we move ahead. I'd like to take a quick break for a commercial. We'll be back in a moment. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 23rd program, our eighth episode in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, bringing you shows like Wounded But Not Broken and Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, 
is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is our 23rd program on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, Episode 8 in the series of Russia Moves into Ukraine. So I'd like to ask each of our participants for a closing comment, and uh, we'll move on into some things about uh, next week. Dave, over to you. Yes, thank you. Just a few words in closing. Basically, I think that uh, so far we're seeing the impact of an information age war. Uh, and that means that a lot of the maneuver is going on in the media and uh, it's happening in real time. People are able to sit back and play the play armchair general quite a bit. Uh, war itself on the ground is very, very different, very chaotic, does look like swarms. And I think that uh, what we're going to see in the, coming period, obviously, is, uh, as I said, a period of rearming. Uh, there are obviously some decisions that have to be made. And hopefully, uh, with what we've presented tonight, people can uh, make up their own minds about where they think things are going to go in the next coming weeks. Thank you, Dave. So, Brian, over to you. Well, I can't think of any major army that has performed as badly as the Russian has, except perhaps the Russian army at the outset of World War II. Um there must be deep shame, humiliation, and anger at many levels of the Russian army, probably not the top, but in coming years, once this war, if this war is somehow put in behind, put in the rearview mirror, I think you're going to see uh, tremendous pressure from colonels and lower ranking generals to fundamentally reform the system. This army is an army made by Putin and his generals, and something has to change for Russia to maintain itself as a uh, world power and to have any sort of respect from in the world and from its own people. Thank you, Brian. I would just like to ask you a question based on what you said about the Russians. Would you compare the British in the Far East to the Russian experience? I mean, in other words, the British up until the arrival of Field Marshal Slim had had a, a very slim pickings in the Far East. Gee, you're bringing up the CBI theater of operations, which is a bit out of my field. Uh, I can tell you that I met a, I met a veteran of Merrill's Marauders a few years ago, and he wasn't very pleased when I used the term Merrill's Marauders. Didn't like it at all. Yeah, I think that the British experienced a great deal of humiliation, and Slim did reform it. But yes, our Merrill's Marauders moved in then after the humiliation and helped to recover it under under Frank Merrill and obviously uh, Vinegar Joe Stillwell, as he was called. So uh, it does strike me that that was an occasion very similar to what we have now. And, and obviously Slim's great book, Defeat Out of Victory, is one people probably have a difficult time finding, but it is worthwhile reading. Okay, well then that brings us to Dean for a closing comment. Dean, please. Every war catches the logisticians by surprise. 
no matter how much you plan, no matter how much you bought in advance, almost always you find out that in an actual war, consumption outpaces supply. Um, this war should hopefully be serving as a wake-up call for all of NATO, that uh, no matter how many AMRAMs, harpoons, uh, javelins, N-laws, toes, Milans you have, it's probably not enough. There is concern right now about our ability to sustain uh, the resupply for the Ukrainians in terms of javelins and stingers. Uh, this is a high-intensity conflict, as, as my co-panelists have noted, but it's nowhere near the intensity that a real you know, NATO, Russia, or for that matter, uh, China-U.S. conflict would entail. And I can only hope that one of the lessons that people are taking away from this, Congress in the appropriation side, the Pentagon, especially with regards to the logistics shops, is to revise and update likely requirements and to start thinking about how do we rapidly expand production of all of the things, not just munitions, but also spare parts involved in modern warfare. Thank you, Dean. Great comments. And, and thank you, panel. I think this has turned into a very wide-ranging discussion of quite a number of things that will be helpful to our audience, uh, to our veterans, to our military, both active and reserve component, and to our citizens. And the thing that we try to do here is remain separate from partisan politics, although we drifted into some aspects of policy and perhaps even high-level politics. They were not devoted to a particular party, but they were devoted to logic and other concerns that I think are important. I would like to remind our audience that we're on at least 10 platforms now, including Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon, our own RSS feed, and others. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, look for VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. And uh, if you like what we're doing, uh, why subscribe and, and pass it on to others. I'd like to thank our guests this evening, Dean Cheng, Dave Johnson, Brian Downing, our engineer for this evening, Midge Rapoli. Ladies and gentlemen, please also be reminded that we have another program out there, and that is Wounded But Not Broken with our host, Patrick Scroggin, who's a retired combat attack pilot who uh, had a crash in Iraq, has recovered and, and, and engaged in a heroic struggle, interviews wounded veterans and others, and has a terrific program on Monday evenings. And Midge is uh, the engineer for that program. He graciously agreed to join us tonight to help work this program. Thanks, Midge. And also our engineer who is traveling tonight, our webmaster, Mark Eli. This is the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 23rd program, our eighth in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. We missed uh, General Dave Grange tonight, but he's operating elsewhere, uh, very busy. And uh, we were happy to host this program in his absence with great guests. Hopefully we've provided our audience with information they can use in the coming weeks. That is all. Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, No One Left Behind.